You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. There's a phrase in the well-known traditional Church of England marriage ceremony where you make a vow and you say the words, forsaking all others. You remember that? You're familiar with that? Something like, uh, wilt thou... Whoever, whoever, keep thou only, they don't say that, who keep thou only unto him, forsaking all others, so long as you both shall live. What does it mean, forsaking all others? What does that really mean? We're going to talk today about holiness, and our way into understanding what holiness means is that little, little illustration. Uh, forsaking all others. Because if you take it out of context, we know in marriage what forsaking all others means. It means faithfulness and exclusivity and all those things. Um, but if you took it out of context, you never heard that before. Forsaking all others could sound a little selfish in a way, you know, like as, as, as if marriage is somehow just for the benefit of the two parties who are getting married. Now, I know you don't think that, but just imagine with me for a second. You literally take the phrase separately, uh, you know, out of context. <laughs> Marriage is designed for fruitfulness in various ways. A household is, uh, before God, the union of man and woman is designed to bear fruit uh, in children, if God gives that gift, or in the fruitfulness of the marriage itself and the various uh, transformations that happen in the life of the couple, or any combination of those things. That's what it's for. It's for fruitfulness. Love is for fruitfulness. That's what God gives it for. But that fruitfulness is enabled by the exclusivity that lies at the heart of the marriage because two people give themselves to each other completely in a way that they don't give themselves to anybody else. That is what makes a marriage fruitful. And the same is tr- true if we, uh, in terms of our understanding what holiness is for. Holiness is actually, it's quite hard to put your finger on what it means. When, with regard to God, it means one thing, that's who God is. He's utterly other from us, utterly pure. But for us, what does it mean for us to be holy towards God? Actually, it's something like this. It's to forsake all others and give ourselves completely to God in a way that we don't give to anyone or any, anything else. Does that make sense? This passage is really about Jesus discerning these two different understandings of what holiness might mean. He's identifying that misunderstanding that holiness is somehow self-serving and unfruitful, um, and, he's, and he's correcting it and showing that it is ordered towards fruitfulness. So you have the Pharisees who, were, who saw themselves and were perceived as the holy ones, uh, the holiest people in the, in the culture at the time. That's how they saw themselves. That's how other people saw them. And here are sinners and tax collectors, the people on the margins of society, living wrecked lives, unholy lives, who are coming to Jesus and listening carefully to what he's saying. That's what it says in this passage. And what are they doing in response to that? What happens to them, the Pharisees? They are grumbling. Because what is holiness for? In their minds, it's to be separate. It's to be separate. It's to be just us and God. And actually, there was, there's literature at the time where there are prayers of the Pharisees where they're sort of celebrating. You know, that when Jesus tells that parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple praying, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this man. There were actually prayers that were almost verbatim, that prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like the sinner, that I am not like the tax collector. We have records of first century prayers 
written by uh, Pharisees, which said those things. So there was this whole attitude of holiness was separateness for its own sake. Jesus shows in his parable that true holiness, true holiness is, is directed towards fruitfulness, towards other people. And the way he does that is he tells this parable. In the first instance, he shows, um, he talks about the, the good shepherd. Uh, the, the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and rescues the one. And he uses this really interesting phrase. He says, I te- after the sheep has been found, um, and he, he sums up his parable, I tell you that in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do, do not need to repent. Where's the holiest place you can think of in the whole of the universe? Material, immaterial. <laughs> I'm, I'm leading you a little bit here. <laughs> heaven, right? The holiest beings in the whole universe, apart from God himself, are the angels who are in his presence. And what are they doing when sinners come and listen to Jesus and, and repent and are saved? What are they doing? Are they grumbling? Are they complaining? They say, well, I didn't sign up for this. No, they are rejoicing because their love, their, the holiness that they live for is being fulfilled. They're delighted. They're delighted to see people utterly transformed. And likewise, so Jesus makes the same point in the second parable. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this true holiness is always directed towards this fruitfulness, towards blessing others and calling other people to God and seeing life transformed and seeing the world filled with, with transformation. Does that make sense? So Jesus illustrates the theme and Luke picks up on this in the way he emphasizes things. By uh, He sort of echoes, uh, he brings to mind in the, in the imagination of the people he's telling a parable to, uh, the time Israel were in the wilderness. The time Israel were in the wilderness. And the wilderness was the place where Israel came to hear God, hear O Israel, and to be instructed. And it's the place where many of the Israelites who escaped Egypt grumbled against God. And you have these two groups of people. You have the sinners, the tax collectors, coming to listen to Jesus. They're gathering around to hear him, it says, verse 1. And the Pharisees were grumbling. And the word there in Greek is a very specific word that's only used in Greek elsewhere to describe what some of the Israelites were doing in the wilderness. So Jesus is deliberately conjuring up uh, that picture. And then in uh, verse 4, it talks about, if one of you were a shepherd, would you not leave the 99 in the wilderness? I don't know if you would, actually, when you really think about that, if you're a shepherd and one escaped. I think many shepherds would probably think, on the balance of things, I should probably stay with the other 99, because if I leave them in the wilderness, they might die too. There's something strange going on in this parable. Jesus is calling to mind this wilderness. And really what he's saying is, you guys who are listening to me, you holy ones, and I think the NIV rightly puts that in, in you know, sinners in speech marks. And these holy ones, the Pharisees who see themselves as holy, are also kind of in speech marks. You righteous ones, where are you? You're in the wilderness. You're far from God. You're, he's kind of turning the table and saying, actually, you think these guys are the ones who wandered off, and actually you're far from him. And, and it, it comes just to mind also the fact that that struggle in the wilderness that Israel faced to come close to God and to trust God, that time of testing, which um, was so difficult. Part of their difficulty in understanding what was happening is that lack of understanding of what it was for. Have you brought us into the wilderness to die? They complained to God. 
we had food and we had drink in Egypt, and yeah, it wasn't great, but, you know. Well, what was the wilderness for? What was it directed towards? Where was it headed? What was the time in the wilderness for? It was for the promised land. That's what it was for. To purify and to test and to accommodate the people of Israel to God's presence. So, holiness is for fruitfulness. Holiness is for the blessing of others. It's not so we can withdraw into ourselves and be different and be set apart just for its own sake. That exclusivity that, that, that we worship God with and we, we give ourselves to him in that particular way is always for the sake of others. It's for another end. Does that make sense? Some illustrations, really quickly. I mean, just it's a repeated pattern in Scripture. Adam and Eve in the garden, God set apart the Garden of Eden and he gave Adam and Eve this place of rest and he said, go forth, multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion over it. So this garden was a safe place, set apart. Why? So that they could, in their security and their, their love for one another and their growth of their family, that garden could gradually bless the whole earth. God chose Noah, set him apart and rescued him upon the ark. Why? So that he could go on blessing the whole earth after he'd judged sin and wiped away all the wickedness. God chose Abraham. Why? To bless all the nations. There's always this fruitfulness. And actually, likewise, for the church. Why has God chosen us as Christians? Not just for ourselves. Not just to bless us. But that we might be a blessing to the whole world. Isn't that true? And if you ever, just as a side note, if you ever struggle with the whole issue of predestination or why should God choose me and not someone else or why should he choose me first and not someone else, actually, the easy answer, aside from all the quite difficult philosophical answers, the easy answer is God chose you for the sake of others. And it's really important to remember. If he chose you first, it was because that was best for somebody else. So this way of understanding holiness is helpful. Because holiness comes with some cliches, some sort of, we have some intuitive ideas of what it means. It means to be like pernickety about certain things, doesn't it? I don't do this and I don't do that. <laughs> holiness can be kind of about being extreme about things. It can be about being different. It can mean like being obsessed with sin and getting things right. But actually, if we understand it in this personal way, Actually, holiness is really about forsaking all others. It's an attitude where we give to God that which we do not give to anybody else. And we give ourselves completely to him for the sake of what will result from that relationship. For the overflow of that relationship. As we give ourselves completely to God, it's like we're filled up. Like Mick was saying a moment ago, as we give ourselves completely to God in our dedication, in our attitude, in our actions, we're not stuck in this kind of static state. But we are filled with living water to overflowing. And that water flows out of us and blesses the lives of others and calls people to, to Jesus. So that's the, the foundation of what God would say to us through his word this morning. What is your understanding of holiness? What is your commitment to it? What is going on in your mind when you think of 
the call in the Bible says to be holy as I am holy. Or whether you explicitly, with understanding, you're pursuing holiness in your own life, or it's just there in the background as a Christian, you've got a vague notion, I need to be holy. How is that shaping your life? Is it directed towards the blessing of others, to a fruitfulness that calls out to other people? That actually, fundamentally, we're talking about fruitfulness, let's make it specific. Jesus is directing it towards the salvation of other people, isn't he? It's not just about blessing others. He's saying, actually, true holiness leads to going out to those who don't know Jesus and taking the gospel to them in compassion and love. Is your holiness directed towards that? That's the big question. Do you have this understanding? I think there's one big challenge from that. Whatever else is important to us about being Christians, we, when God calls us to be holy, he, he's saying to us, I want you to share my passion for the lost. I want you to share my passion for the lost. I mean, surely we have to take that away from this passage, don't we? <laughs> the passage of the lost sheep, the lost coin. How whatever else we get, you know, no matter how interesting or whatever the, the, these angles are in terms of holiness and all that sort of thing, surely the one thing we have to get out of this passage is you have to share God's passion for those who don't know Jesus. The angels in heaven, this passage is telling us, as they cry, holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty in heaven, as they're, as they're shielding their eyes and covering their feet, their passion is also for the lost as wrapped as they are, as absorbed as they are in the glory of God in a way that's completely unimaginable to us, they are filled with a love and a passion for the lost. That means when someone is saved, there is rejoicing in heaven. That God is more glorified. We have to share that passion. To share that passion, you have to know that God has that passion about you. His love for you. You know, the the shepherd is... It doesn't take much biblical insight, does it, for me to explain to you that the shepherd is a picture of Jesus. And Jesus left heaven, the Father's side, took upon his shoulders our burdens, the state that we live in, came and lived among us and shared in our life and uh, shared in our temptations, lived an ordinary life, took upon himself at the cross our punishment. As he's, he's carrying away this, the, the sheep, he's carrying it back on his shoulders. He's In the same way that he bore our sins upon his shoulders. That's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Where does that come from? It comes from his passion for you, because he loves you so much. That love for you so much comes from his love for the Father, who loves him so much. In that infinite dance of love that's all, all but incomprehensible to us, apart from God shows it to us. In eternity, God's love is overflowing to you. He loves you. He made you. He made you special and unique. He has a calling for your life. And many of you in this room were lost and have been found. And if you weren't lost and have been found, then you're still lost. Isn't it worth reflecting on the Lord's love for us? That on, the, on that place where you were when he came and found you? Isn't it worth thinking about that? Many of you were very aware of the, the, the trouble you were in. Many of you were in, you know, trepidatious situations, on precipices, calling out to God, 
I need your help. Some of you were too young or too ignorant, too blind, too lost to even know that you were lost till you heard the shepherd's voice. But whatever your situation, he came and found you, didn't he? His love for you. If you know that, then surely how can we not share that passion for those who, who are still in that situation? How can that mercy to us not redound in us and overflow towards others? We sang this morning, I wrote it down, I hadn't planned to say this, but this is so wonderful. He is beauty for the blind man. There are people, maybe you're here this morning, and the, the world is dull and grey and lifeless and meaningless and pointless and you don't know which way to go. I'm telling you, you're surrounded by God's love. The riches of his beauty, he wants to bless every second of every minute, of every hour, every, every day for you. He wants to fill you with the knowledge of how special you are, how loved you are, who you can be in Christ, how much uh, the plans he has for you to bless you and fill you, to fill your life with beauty, to change your character so that all the ugliness and mess and filth and, is gone, and to fill you with light and life. He's beauty for the blind man. He's friendship for the one the world ignores. He's pasture for the weary. What rest he gives us. Rest from self-righteousness, from trying to get things right and just looking here, there and everywhere for the answers to our moral problems, to our existential crisis, to what is the point of life. Isn't he rest for the weary one who searches? Rest for the one who's trying to earn their way into heaven? He's rescue for the captives. The one who's bound by addiction, bad habits, poor upbringing. Abuse of others. One whose hands and feet are tired. He feels chained. He's rescued. He rescued you. And he's ready to rescue all these people around us. He's passionate about it. And he's inviting us to come and share in that. And just as a side note, isn't this a wonderful thing to reflect on? The time when I feel furthest from God, you know, when I've somehow wandered away from him again, you know, in spiritual closeness or some moral failure or whatever it is, somehow it's happened to me or I've chosen it. That time when I, I feel that somehow I've offended him and distanced myself from him is the very time when this passage tells me he, I'm guaranteed that he is coming after me. You know, so I, I need to return to God. I need to muster up the strength to go and find myself and work myself back into his presence. He's already looking for me. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Is that we need to turn that on our heads? <laughs> How habituated we are to think that way. That somehow I need to earn my way back into I need to start that long journey back to the sheepfold. And you turn around and, oh, <laughs> he's there. Or maybe you don't know that. Maybe you're not a Christian. Or maybe it's been so long since you came to church or even thought about God or anything like that. He's looking for you. That's why you're here today. You heard his voice. He heard your cry. He heard your cry. He's already looking for you. Already calling. And he's saying, I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to carry you. Set you free. Give you rest. Give you beauty, give you life. So Jesus is the shepherd, that's pretty obvious. We can understand the second parable. The woman is a picture of 
us. A picture of the church. The second parable, Luke loves to do things in pairs. He loves to illustrate, you know, one thing with a story about a woman, another story about a man, and vice versa. He'll talk about two people when Matthew only mentions one. He loves to, he's always thinking in twos. Maybe because it's good to have two witnesses, you know, that sort of thing. We don't know, but he loves to do it. And he records these two parables of Jesus side by side. But there's something in this picture. The shepherd is obviously Jesus. But the woman we can understand as an analogy for the church. These ten coins, we don't know if they're definite, but quite possibly they were a dowry given to her when she was married. This promise of, no matter what happens to you, these, these things will always be yours. It's your independent wealth. And like, if we understand it that way, the church has been given an inheritance, which is those who don't know Jesus, isn't it? The inheritance is the lost. We have this inheritance, the treasure of the church, is the privilege of being able to carry this message out to the world and see people saved. What an amazing privilege we have. And this, this picture, this woman who's lost the coin, is a picture of the attitude the church should have as we become aware that not everyone has heard the gospel yet. That I'm living next door to, or across the road from, or I'm working with people, or whatever it is, that don't know Jesus, that are lost. Made in the image of God, they have the imprint of of the image of God upon them, like a coin has the imprint of a head on it, they're lost. And this woman is diligently, painstakingly searching. That should be the attitude of the church. I mean, this, this picture, you've got to imagine a first century dwelling, house, hovel, I don't know, mud floors, no nice neat tiling, you know, bricks with holes in, gaps between the, the rocks. Mud, maybe mess on the floor. She's dropped one of her coins. There's no windows or very few, or very little natural light. And he, what does he say? She does. She she lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She searches carefully until she finds it. She's on her hands and knees, isn't she? She's looking at every crevice. She's determined. She's determined to 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 find this this gift that she's lost. And God is saying to us this morning, do you share my passion for the lost? I don't know what to make of your response right now. Whether I'm explaining it badly, or whether you're feeling it weightily, or whether you don't care, I'm not sure. Well, there's a, just you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not. It's not. It's uncouth of me to tell you that. But what the reason I'm telling you prophetically because God is wondering. Is it just your Englishness, or is it weightiness, or is it that you don't care? Because he wants you to share that passion. There are people who don't know Jesus. There are people whose eternal fates are being decided at this second. There are people who are trapped in sin, with their own and the consequences of sin. There are people who have not even had a glimmer of light of the gospel, who have no hope for their lives. And we are comfortable, and we are holy, and we are satisfied, and they are lost. 
And Jesus is searching, and you are his bride, and are you searching? Are you on your hands and knees with the, the, the lamp, which is the word and the spirit, praying and preaching and carrying this news to people who precious, made in God's image, designed to know him and be full of his love, designed to give glory to God forever and to show us things about God that we wouldn't know if they, if they were never saved. Are you as passionate about them as, as, we, as you should be? Again and again, when this topic arises in Scripture, the picture that comes to me is of, of Hannah on the steps of the temple, weeping and barely able to pray with any sense to God for the child that she, she has not yet born. Crying out to God in her childlessness, Lord, give me a child. A church that sees none or few people being saved should be, at the very least, on the steps of the temple crying out to God for children, shouldn't it? Yeah. I, I don't mean literally children, maybe, but I mean people being saved. That's, that's, a, that's on all of us. For, us. for me as a pastor, for you guys who are elders, especially so, because you are literally the shepherds of the church. So we are, you know, this isn't like a, this isn't an analogy that may or may not apply. This is like, this is on us. I'm speaking to just a few of you now. Now that should be, where are we going to get that passion from? Where are we going to get that passion from? I suppose that's the question, isn't it? Where, what do we do? Maybe that's the silence. We're like, okay, Lord, we, we know it. We've heard it a few times now. Where are we going to get that passion from? Where are we going to find the energy, the impetus? Where are we going to, to, to... How does that happen? How do we become so full of you that we can't help but overflow? That's, I suppose that's the second point that God would uh, bring to us this morning. So if you're feeling a weight and it's kind of like a, this is a pull your socks up message, it's really not. I try never to do that. Because that's not the gospel, is it? Just try harder. God, but God does want to give us concrete. Like, it's not just the case of either. It's just like, uh, we'll pray and ask God to give it to us and that'll be that. So where do we get this passion for the lost from? Well, I think from this passage we find that it comes from true holiness. From true holiness. From that genuine sense. I remember our illustration right at the beginning. That sense of forsaking all others. Giving ourselves completely to God. There is a misunderstanding, I think. I don't think it's a, an understandable misunderstanding. that To be an evangelist, uh, to be evangelical, means somehow watering down the unusualness of the Christian faith to make it palatable to people. And we, so, we see sometimes that in the kind of disco vicar way that our churches have presented the gospel, especially as I was growing up, there's a, there's a real movement to make church and the gospel palatable to people in, in a way that they can understand. I say disco vicar, you know what I mean by that? You know, like trying to be funky, let's do like, we're going to rap Amazing Grace, that sort of thing, you know. And, and to be appealing. Now, there's such a thing as contextualization. That's fine. And Paul says, I've become all things to all people, though by all possible means, some might be saved. Contextualization is one thing. 
But if we think somehow we have to water down our lifestyle or our devotion to God to make ourselves seem more normal, seem more like the world, then we're getting it wrong. There's a, f- a funny story. I'm not really sure it fits, but I feel like we need a little light relief before God whacks us again. So, About a pastor and evangelist um, who go on holiday together, who go for a retreat together into uh, the woods in North America, into a, into a forest. He's shaking your head. Am I like that? Tell the story. It's fine. It's okay. It's not rude or anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're hypothetically speaking. So, uh, a pastor and evangelist go out to this log cabin for a retreat, and they obviously have different ways of, you know, getting close to God. And it's the morning, and uh, the pastor says, "You know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stay in. I'm gonna pray. I'm just gonna spend time with the Lord." And the evangelist says, "I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna." Uh, Go and walk in nature and be close to God that way. And so they, they go their separate ways. The pastor stays in, the evangelist goes out. And after about an hour and a half or so, the pastor, the pastor's in his log cabin and he hears a voice in the distance saying, open the door, open the door. He looks out the window and he sees the evangelist running really fast towards the log cabin. And the shouting gets louder. Open the door, open the door. And more desperate, open the door, open the door. And then he sees behind the evangelist running after him as a giant bear chasing him. Bear on, you know, like properly gambling after the, the evangelist, and so he thinks, oh, I need to rescue him. So the evangelist is running towards the door, the pastor's waiting there, and, he, and he's got it all planned in his head. At the last minute, he's going to open the door, the evangelist is going to run in, and he's going to slam it, and the bear's going to be trapped on the outside. So this is, the evangelist gets to the door, he says, open the door, open the door, and the, he gets right to the door, the pastor opens it really quickly, and the evangelist dodges to one side. The bear crashes through the opening into the living room. The evangelist grabs the door from the outside and slams it shut, and shouts through the window, you deal with that one, I'll go get another one. (laughs) I like the story. What what am I vaguely trying to illustrate? Just that we have this picture of evangelism as kind of like down and dirty thing, you know? And it is in the sense of you've got to be amongst people, right? You've got to be amongst people. You've got to be where the danger's at. You've got to be amongst the bears. It's grizzly. Yeah, it's grizzly out there. Thanks. <laughs> now I'm thinking about other bear puns. Thanks. <laughs> but you know, that's, that's... And it's true in a sense, but we can misunderstand that as to be like it means watering down our faith. You know, I think it was one of you guys told me about this church in America where... They were trying to be really cool and invite people in at Easter or something like that. And so they were playing rock music at the beginning of the service. And they were playing Highway to Hell, I think, by ACDC as their intro music for an Easter service. Highway to Hell. That's like... uh... Anyway. If our idea of holiness is that we... It's It's the wrong idea of holiness. That holiness makes us some... And and what does it come from? It comes from this idea that holiness makes us inaccessible. It makes us like so different that people can't even understand us. The problem with that is if we see holiness that way, is it takes away our motivation for preaching the gospel. If holiness isn't about us being close to God and full of his life and enjoying him, it takes away our motivation for the gospel. So Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 25, he says this, I mean, it's pretty hard. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. 
if we don't have joy in the gospel, if we're living a miserable Christian life, it's all about this rule and that rule and not doing anything wrong, and it's all just focused on being pure without that focus on fruitfulness, then we're hypocrites. Because what are we inviting people into? Misery, slavery, self-righteousness. Why would they want to come? And we know that, and so we don't share the gospel. But true holiness empowers, because it fills us with this, as we enjoy God, we're filled with joy at the prospect of people coming to know God. So I think God, would, by his word this morning, would touch on that, that issue that for many of us, or maybe all of us at various times, we're holding back in sharing the gospel. We're holding back from God, or we're holding back what we share. Or we're watering down our lives or our message on the basis that we don't want to be weird, we don't want to lose touch with people, we don't want to be misunderstood. And there's a danger, I think. God would say, you think you're being brave by changing your message or by not doing the same things as other Christians, but actually you're being timid. You think you're being bold, but actually you're running away. Real boldness is giving yourself completely to Jesus. Real boldness is holding to the purity of that message. Real boldness is living 100% for him without worrying that you know, somehow people aren't going to understand that. True holiness makes us passionate for the gospel. It makes our, our witness powerful. What is more powerful than Christ-like, spirit-filled people to witness the gospel? You can be anyone, in any context. If you've got the fruit of the spirit... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness. If you cut those things, people find that compelling. How do we get those things? Pursuit of holiness with God. By giving God everything. True holiness makes us persevere. You know, just coming back to the heavy stuff again. I was sharing with someone this week, you know, that I feel like, and, I, 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 and this is for me as well, like I feel like it's the attitude of my own heart, but as a church, for a long time, I just feel like every time we touch on the subject of evangelism or mission, it's like, it's like you know, when you get two magnets and the, you've got the two poles, the north and the south, and you get two magnets, the north and north of both faces, and you, you're like, yep, we get it, evangelism is really good. Yep, we get it, we really need to do it. Yep, yep, okay, we're really going to do this. We're going to tell people that. You know what I mean? We come close again and again. Comes to the crunch. How many messages have we heard? How many times have we heard it? How many prophetic words have we have about what our purpose is as a church? I want to throw myself into a relationship with God. I, you know, that comes to me more naturally. I'm like the guy in the inside the log cabin, not expecting the bear. That's my natural. You know, I love spending time with God. I love pastoring God's people. But if if my passion for relationship with God is not directed towards this overflow, then it's completely for nothing. And in the dangers as a church, we take on that whole character. We, we love spending time with God so much that we're going to, you know, it becomes sterile. And I, I just think God would 
challenge us, whatever that is, to, to overcome that timidity or laziness or disorganization or whatever it is, I don't know. But holiness gives us what we need. So here's the challenge. We're still on the kind of try harder bit, but actually what God is saying is that if there's any trying to be done, it's in this attitude that is summed up in that first illustration of forsaking all others. There is something that's quite intuitively quite easy for us to understand. That actually, we know in a relationship when we're holding back, in a friendship or a marriage or with our children or with our parents, we know when we're holding back. We're not giving everything of ourselves to, to the other, other person. And I think for me, in, a, in my spiritual life, the symptoms of that are quite interesting. I think the things God might challenge us on are quite interesting. So for me, like, I hold back in small ways. Like, I don't purify my... And this sounds pernickety, but actually it's a symptom of something bigger. In my speech, the words I say, whether I use rude words or not, whether I indulge in unwholesome talk or not, you know, there's a call to holiness there. Actually, the Bible says it's a really big deal. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, nor obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. I've mangled two verses together there. But... I know in me that when those things are present, that actually that's a symptom. It's, it's, you see, it's not the thing itself. I mean, it's, it's the attitude underneath it. I'm holding something back from God. I'm like, I'm not really giving everything of myself. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I watch, probably challenge, you know, like, it doesn't matter if I watch this thing on television or this series that I know is unho- you know, unhelpful. <laughs> it's going to have stuff in that's going to fill my mind with images or ideas. Or if I keep going on the internet and filling my mind with bad news. You know, actually, but again, those things... You know, in one sense, they're some of them big, some of them small, you know. But really, it's the attitude underneath it. I'm holding something back from God. I'm like, God, I'm not giving you everything because I I don't want to miss out on this cultural event that's happening. I don't want to miss out on this uh, understanding that other people have that they get because they spend so long in social media. You know, I don't want to be different. And so I'm holding back on giving God that purity because I'm worried that somehow I'm going to miss out. It's holding back in things I do, like in, in these little things in in, in life. I, you know, sometimes I have to sign uh, photographs of people to say that they are who they are because I'm a pastor. In fact, that makes me trustworthy, and I can. Say. And sometimes you have to sign documents saying, "I've seen all the relevant documentation," you know, uh, to sh- show this this information is correct. And you sign on the line. And I think once or twice people have come and they haven't brought the documentation. They're people I know really well. Then I've got a sign something that says, I have seen all the documentation. It's like, well, what difference does it make? <laughs> but actually, it's, it's lying, right? It's perjury. Nobody knows. They didn't, and, and then you feel really awkward. You're like, I'm so really sorry, you've got to go home and get the passport or get this or whatever. I mean, you know, it's things like that, but it's not the thing. It, you see, it's so easy for you to hear me saying, it's, it's about being really, really tight about these things. It's not, it's the attitude underneath, you see. It's that I'm more worried about upsetting that person than I am about honouring God. That's holiness. That's forsaking all others. You understand? 
Well, this is serious. You know, we have serious things in our lives, don't we? Much, you know, bigger things than that. It's like giving God our time. And multitasking in church. That's, you know, concentrating in worship. Isn't it funny? Like, I find this with worship and... Um, you know, sometimes in personal relationships, you ever find like you just don't want to do something for someone because you don't want to do it, just because, just because. There's no reason. You ever feel like that? Someone asks you to do something; it's the easiest thing in the world, and you just feel like saying no for the sake of it. Is that just me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. You know your pastor a little better. <laughs> Is this irrational rejection? Do you ever feel like that in worship? You come to worship and you're singing a song like, oh, we sang these amazing exuberant songs, he's our rescuer, he's our rescuer. Little Nathan, he struggles with this, I can see it. You know, he doesn't want to let himself go and enjoy God. He's, it's not just that he's self-conscious, there's something actually quite, a bit more serious, if I can pick on my own son for a minute. There's something, a bit, I recognise it because it's in me. A bit more serious, and sometimes I just don't want, I don't want to give God my worship. Yeah. I want to hold back. I don't want to abandon myself to him emotionally or mentally. You know, there's something about that, isn't it? You, you know what I'm talking about? Or, you know, where we spend our time, we can hold back. We can, don't want to give God church. I don't want to give God prayer time in the morning. <laughs> I want to hold back, hold back. Holiness is about that attitude that underlies those things. Under, under, it's underneath all of that. I'm giving God everything. And I trust that I, as I abandon myself to the other person, to God, then there's this fullness that comes, that overflows. That's where the joy is in our relationship with God. Not in doing any of the, any individual things that I've given you an illustration of, whether they apply to you or you can think of analogies for your own life. Not in the specific things themselves, but the attitude of giving yourself completely to God. That's what he would address with us. Where do we get the passion from for evangelism? Where do we find the joy that we want to invite people into? When we abandon ourselves to God, when we trust him in everything. When we're living for him, when we're, we're loving him like a, like a spouse. And as, as we give our all to God, we experience this fruitfulness. As we control our speech, as we don't indulge, you know, just that lackness with the way we speak and what we speak about, we experience that living water. The tongue is a source of living water, it says in James. It makes us feel clean and whole. It gives us fruitfulness. As we control what we watch, it says, if we fill our minds with what is wholesome and true, good and, and beautiful, the God of peace is with us. We experience a peacefulness and a break from the restlessness of the world. As we, on, as we do the right thing, we experience God honouring us as we've honoured him. We experience his faithfulness underneath us. As we give him our time, as we take rest on the Sabbath, as we, as we sacrifice time to come to church or to spend time with prayer or in fellowship with others, we experience the truth that those who wait on the Lord will, be, will have their strength renewed. They'll be lifted up on wings like eagles. The secret, the heartbeat of the Christian life is this rest in God that leads to life-giving power. As we, as we sacrifice money to God and his service to, to the poor or to whoever, we realize God is no man's debt. We experience this freedom. As we, the whole attitude has changed. As we give ourselves to God, abandon in worship, as we kneel down in worship, or as we lift our hands, as we, as we make that sacrifice, we experience that release, that same release you get when you tell someone, I love you, and you break that barrier, you know, we experience that fullness of life. So what are you holding back? Are you holding back? 
I can think of a hundred ways to misunderstand what I've said this morning. But I hope you see, hear what God is saying underneath it all. It was that complete gift of self Jesus made of himself to the Father. That true holiness that meant he left heaven and came and rescued us. The lost sheep, the lost coin. It was that that gave him the joy, that made him attractive to the sinner. That made them flock around him and listen to every word. That gave him the strength to see through his mission that took him to the cross. It says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him. That's true holiness. For the joy set before him. What moved Jesus to save us wasn't only pity, but the joy of eternal life that he had in eternity and he desired, desires to share with us, to know that peace, that joy, that fullness of life, knowing and returning the Father's love. Let's pray.